From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Somil Trivedi, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU and your host for this month. This week, we're going to talk about families and a uniquely American hypocrisy surrounding them. You see, on the one hand, politicians are always talking about supporting strong nuclear families. And in some ways, we do. We give tax breaks to people who get married and have children. Kids eat free at Denny's on Tuesdays. Yet, also in America, government officials at the federal, state, and local levels are tearing families apart by the thousands under the cover of our laws. For example, in the Trump administration, the Department of Homeland Security forcibly separated more than 5,000 migrant parents from their children, some as young as four months old, under Trump's zero-tolerance border policy. To this day, a 1,000 children and maybe more are yet to be reunified with their parents. They remain stranded and alone. Candidate Joe Biden had called that policy criminal, but in December, the Justice Department walked away from settlement talks with lawyers representing those families. And immigration enforcement isn't the only way we destroy families. The criminal justice system and the child welfare system do it too, in astonishing numbers, and usually to the most vulnerable among us. To discuss this double standard, propping up some families while destroying others, and to discuss the continued trauma and ongoing battles of separated families is legal earned. Deputy Director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project, who has steered the border separation litigation from the outset. Joining him is Shanta Trevetti, Assistant Professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and Faculty Director of the Meyerhoff Center for Families, Children, and the Courts. She's a foremost expert on the law around family trauma and also happens to be my wonderful and brilliant wife, not that I'm biased. Lee and Shanta, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. So, Lee, let's start with you. Can you recap for us how family separation at the southern border began, how the ACLU got involved, and where we are today in reuniting families and addressing the damage done? Yes, sure. And it's been a long journey, and we're still not, you know, nearly done. When we started hearing about it was the fall of 2017. There was statements by the Trump administration they were considering but weren't actually going to do family separation. We then began hearing from advocates that information was slowly trickling in. But by January of 2018, it became clear that families were being separated. I met with the lead plaintiff that winter, Miss L. She goes by Miss L. And she had escaped the Congo with her six-year-old daughter a three-month journey here, finally got here. They took her child away. When I met with her, she hadn't slept. She was gaunt. She hadn't seen her child in three months, had no idea why they took her child away. All she remembered was they took her child into the next room and she could hear her child screaming, please don't take me away. Please don't take me from my mommy. We then filed a court case for her because she was in so much agony. We filed that at the end of February, roughly a week later, we filed a national class action. And at that time, we alleged that there were maybe 300, 400 kids separated. When we finally stood up in court in May, the New York Times had broke that there were 700 families that had been separated. When we got the ruling, this was June 2018, the judge said, I want all the families have been separated, reunited, and no more families separated. The judge then said, I want to know how many there are. Are there really 700? The government came in and told us that there were 2,800. 2,800 
some of whom were only six, seven months old who had been separated. We now know that at least 5,500 children were separated, hundreds of whom were just babies and toddlers. We are still looking for roughly 250 of the families and still need to reunite in excess of 1,000, we believe. Families we originally found, but the Trump administration said, look, we, we've deported hundreds and hundreds of families without their children, the parents without their children. We don't intend to try and find them. The ACLU said, we'll find them. We created a steering committee headed by the law firm Paul Weiss with three NGOs, Justice in Motion, which operates overseas, Kids in Need of Defense, Kind, and the Women's Refugee Commission. And that has been an ongoing project, Herculean task from these groups with the ACLU's backing to try and find all the families because the Trump administration didn't keep records it essentially it was detective work in Central America, sometimes just going door to door to look for these families. You mentioned the pain that you saw Miss L and her family go through. You've met dozens of these families. Can you tell us some of the effects of the policy on both the parents and the children? Yeah. On the children's side, what all of the medical profession told me was this is going to potentially cause irreparable harm to these children, trauma. And, you know, I understood it intellectually, could understand it through my own kids if they were ever taken away. But hearing the stories and meeting the families, it just became so real. And and what the medical community said a few things. One is they said the only reason a four or five-year-old is not so scared of the world every minute of the day is because they think their parents can protect them. But then what would happen is the child would be pulled away from the parents, screaming and begging, and they would be looking in their parents' eyes and seeing their parents helpless to protect them and would immediately know at that point that they were vulnerable to all the dangers of the world. And, you know, it manifested itself in this continuing feeling of vulnerability that could last them a whole lifetime. You know, some of the the worst stories for me are just little things that happen. They're not necessarily objectively the worst, but a little boy, a little four-year-old boy from Honduras who needed glasses and his parents scraped together, the very modest means scraped together the money for the glasses and they got him a glasses case because they knew they couldn't afford a second pair. So that glasses case was such a central part of their whole life. So when they came to take him away, he was begging and screaming, please don't take me. Fortunately, he was wearing his glasses, but he wasn't able to get his glasses case. So all day long, all the mother thought about is, can my little boy see? Will they show him where to keep his glasses safe? Will they get him another pair of glasses? And I think it's just one story after another like that. And you asked about the parents. You know, I think when people talk about it now, I I fear that they don't really put themselves in the same shoes. People say to me, well, if I was that, if that parent, I would have been doing everything to stop it. And then I would have been going everywhere. Well, that's a privilege to have that kind of outrage and think you could do all that. What mothers would tell me is they were scared even to ask where their child was being taken for fear that their child would be treated worse. You know, and this, the guilt, what happened was the children were too young when they came back to really understand why this happened. So they would blame the parents. So I think we 
are hopeful that we can make all these families healthy. But I think we're in a, we're a long haul with that. And it needs to be the children and the parents. I'm glad you mentioned the otherizing of the parents who are in this predicament. I think Shanta is going to tell us about why we allow this to happen to certain families and not others so that we can deflect. But so I want to get back to the litigation. So the science is clear. The ruling is clear that these families have to be reunited. Initially, the Biden administration comes to the table and says, let's make these families whole. But then in December, the bombshell, they walk away. So bring us up to the present and explain why that happened and what we're doing about it. Right. So one thing I want to make clear, which I think is not clear to most people, is that there were two separate sets of negotiations ongoing. One is just the ACLU and the government, and that's to settle our initial lawsuit called the Macelle lawsuit. And that involves everything except monetary compensation. So that involves continuing to find the families we haven't found yet, to get them reunified in the United States, to give them three years of what's called parole, meaning they can stay in the country while they pursue their cases, have work authorization, get them services like mental health services, but then most importantly, to get them a pathway to remain in the country permanently through asylum or other means so that they never get re-separated from their children again and are never sent back to danger. That's ongoing. Families are being reunited in the U.S. Whether we hit a bump I don't know, but right now those have been constructive. The other set of negotiations, which you referenced, are about monetary compensation. And there the ACLU is one of the main negotiators with a few other groups and law firms who are acting as coordinating counsel for the hundreds and hundreds of people who have filed tort suits. And those tort suits allege that the government, the United States, owes money. And we not only sued the United States, but we sued former federal officials like Stephen Miller, who's supposedly the architect of the family separation practice, former Attorney General Sessions, and down the line. So in those lawsuits, the Biden administration came to all of us and said, let's settle those and get that out of the way, the monetary compensation. We thought we were getting somewhere. Those negotiations were ongoing for a long time, close to seven months. There was then a leak by the government. Politics took over. And shockingly, the Biden administration has walked away. So now all the people who have brought tort suits, including the ACLU, are back in court. And what's remarkable, I think, are two things. One is that the Biden administration let politics dictate what they were going to do on what is essentially a moral issue and one of historic importance to the United States. The second part of it is that the Department of Justice is also, in our case, defending the individual federal officials like Sessions and Miller. And the Department of Justice has to represent the United States, but they had a choice not to represent the individual federal officials. That's a discretionary decision. They could have told Stephen Miller and others go get your own attorney, but they didn't. So they're going to be standing up in court, in our case, defending those individual officials. So we'll see how those cases play out. On the other end, about getting permanent relief for these families and and other non-monetary benefits, hopefully that remains constructive. I hope the Biden administration doesn't back down because of politics. I hope our listeners uh, keep their eye on this case as it moves forward. It's still important uh, five years later. 
So Shanta, uh, now I'm going to turn to you, uh, almost literally, because you're right upstairs, um, and your work in the family courts. Uh, and that brought you in contact with other instances of family separation, this time within our borders. So where do you see parallels between family separation in the immigration context and in the child welfare system, or as you and others have termed it, the family regulation system? So I think that the immigration crisis at the southern border that Lee just described was a real turning point for our country because, first of all, it gave us this name, family separation, and it gave us faces and stories. And it also gave us an outpouring of data. So, for example, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a statement about the detrimental and irreversible impacts on children who are separated from their parents. And while people were rightly outraged by what was happening at the border, advocates and families who uh, are involved with the criminal legal and child welfare systems were taken aback because families are separated every day by the child welfare system and because of incarceration. And those families are similarly traumatized, and we never talked about that. And everything that Lee just described um, in terms of the pain and the anxiety of separation is happening to families every day in courts in the United States. So you spoke just now about trauma. Lee spoke about trauma. Uh, Your academic work focuses on a concept called the harm of removal. What is that, and can you give us some examples? Sure. So the harm of removal is a term primarily used in the child welfare system for the numerous ways that a child might be negatively impacted, first from the actual removal from their families, and then from the subsequent placement into foster care. Dr. Monique Mitchell wrote this fantastic book called The Neglected Transition, and she interviewed children who had been separated from their parents due to allegations of abuse and neglect. And children reported that the actual act of removal, being, for many of them, you know, being pulled out of their beds at night by strangers and put into cars with people they had never met, spending nights in a holding space or even at a child protective uh, agency's office, one 12-year-old said he felt like he was kidnapped the kids get no information about what is happening or why. And that lack of information adds to the anxiety and makes them feel out of control and confused. Once they're with foster parents, they may feel that they don't belong with any family, right? And many of them are separated from their siblings, which adds to the trauma. They may be in a different community, a different neighborhood, different school, separated from pets and possessions, And all of this adds up to to major anxiety and feelings of grief and loss. And children mourn the loss of a parent as if they had died. Foster children also have terrible physical and mental health outcomes. One study showed that the rate of PTSD in foster children was twice as high as United States war veterans. Whoa. I mean, think about that, right? United, in the United States, children who are in the care of the government are experiencing rates of PTSD at higher rates than adults that have gone to war. Foster care can be a pipeline to incarceration. Foster children are more likely to have contact with the juvenile justice system. They're more likely to be impoverished, to be unhoused. They're less likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to become parents as teenagers. And they're also likely to themselves lose their children to the child welfare system. And rather than spending resources to support parents so that they can parent effectively and have the material resources that they need to properly care for their children, we brand them as unfit and pay strangers to care for them. 
Currently, our government spends 10 times more on foster care and adoption than it does on preventative services designed to keep families together. And I'm talking about 10 billion, billion with a B, dollars on foster care and adoption and a little over 1 billion on services geared towards preservation. It sounds to me like American history and racism and poverty all affect this dynamic you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, of course, during slavery, we systematically removed children from their parents. So this is a very deep part of our history. Scholars have labeled family court the poor person's court and the child welfare system as an apartheid institution. And I think what it's important for people to know about the child welfare system is that what you see in the news, these horrible cases of abuse, are really the exception, not the rule. The most recent estimate that I saw was that 74% of child welfare cases nationwide were due to neglect, not abuse. And poverty is often conflated with neglect or creates circumstances that can lead to neglect. And that's very significant in the context of race because Black children in this country, for a whole bunch of reasons, are nearly three times more likely to live in poverty than their white counterparts. Do you feel like in your work you see people, whether they express it or it's more at a subconscious level, feeling like, well, these parents don't love their children as much. I mean, I remember when the judge said the Trump administration wouldn't let parents come back to reunite with their children in the U.S., but would let the children, obviously, force the government to pay for the children to come back to Central America. And I remember the judge asking me, so, you know, Mr. Grillo, you were just in Guatemala talking to families, and it seems like not all the parents are going to bring their children back to Central America. One father said to me, he was in his 40s, and he said, you know, my life's basically over because I'm the town is controlled by gangs, which was sad enough that at 40, he felt like his life was over. He said, I can't bear to think of never seeing my child again, but even worse would be to bring him back, knowing the gangs are either going to make him join or kill him. And so, you know, that feeling that they don't love their kids as much is so crazy, but it was so much talk and people think, well, they can't love their kids as much as we middle-class Americans do. And I'm wondering how much you, you sort of feel that's going on in your work. I think that's a huge part of it. And it's a part of the judgment. And there's an idea that Parents who are low income are not doing enough when everything is so hard for them. We make, you know, if you have to go to five government offices to make sure you have housing, um, you're able to receive your benefits, you have to make a stop in court because there's always some case pending. The amount of families that I have represented that also had an ongoing immigration case or criminal case or housing case or all of the above, um, makes life very difficult. There's a series of appointments that make it impossible to do anything else but keep up with your responsibilities to the government for you to get the basic things you need to survive, housing and, and food. And if you don't do those, then you end up in child welfare court because you're not providing for your kids. And I think low-income people in this country are just faced with impossible choices every day. There's a this very um, distinct othering in the child welfare system, you know, we're not like them. Those people are different. And I think what we have to remember in the law is that the law does not require you to be a perfect parent. 
who is a perfect parent? You know, who is that person? And the things that get classified as unfitness really just expose structural problems in this country. Right, that makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm listening to this uh, and just ticking off all the parallels with the criminal justice system, right? We've mentioned them, but this otherizing of certain communities, even though they engage in all of the same behavior that privileged communities do, right? We all, we've all heard that white folks and black folks smoke marijuana at the same rates, and yet black folks are arrested at three to 10 times the rate for doing the same thing. The criminal justice system explicitly judges people as having done wrong and therefore makes it okay to throw their lives away and separate their families. And then Lee mentioned reform and how we're going to prevent these things rather than addressing them after the fact. But we definitely have not tried prevention nearly enough. So we've covered the problem. Now let's talk about solutions. Uh, Knowing the long-term harm of separating families across all the systems we've talked about, how do we avoid future government-led or government-sanctioned separations? And how do we address the harm already done? So Lee, I want to start with you um, and immigration. So the immigration area, I think, has two parts to it. One is the very specific family separation practice that the Trump administration engaged in, which was unprecedented. Every other administration, Republican or Democrat, said, yeah, we could take kids away at the border, but we're not going to because it's just far too cruel and it's a step beyond anything the United States should ever be thinking about. And that was why Laura Bush came out on her own and wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, look, my husband was a Republican president. There was disagreements about immigration policy. People can have reasonable disagreements. Not everyone agrees with the ACLU on macro immigration policy, but we just don't take little children away. But the second reason prior administrations didn't do it is it just doesn't work as a deterrent because families will come no matter what if they're in that much danger. And I would repeatedly ask families after they were here, would you have come anyway if you knew you were going to lose your child? And they just shrugged and said, well, what choice did I have? I couldn't have my child be killed. So I think this specific practice can just be ended The harder issue, I think, comes in when we talk about deporting parents who have been here a long time. Their their children may be U.S. citizen children. Are we going to have a deportation policy that allows families to be separated and puts them in an impossible choice? I think what we need to do is stop deporting people for minor things, especially if they have kids. But I think that's going to take some real thinking about how we do that. But we have to give you know, put a stronger weight on the side of let's not force families into that unless there's a very serious reason why we need to deport. I think, you know, I'm interested in hear what Shanti says. I'm hoping that Shanti gives us very easy solutions, but I suspect that there are no really easy solutions. So I think the first thing that we should be thinking about is how we incorporate the harm of removal into decisions that are made every day about whether children should be removed. In New York and D.C., courts are required to consider the harm of removal as part of the analysis of whether a child should be removed in a specific case or not. And in the rest of the country, courts are not required to consider all of the harms that Lee and I just described. And what's really crazy to me about this is that the allegations against the parent are often speculative. We don't know yet if a child will be harmed. 
But the harm of removal is certain. We just talked about all the data. There is going to be trauma to a child and, and to the family and often to the community when children are removed. And we don't talk about that at all in most courts across the country. So, you know, you, you just mentioned what could be done to the system of laws to make the proceedings more fair once folks are already in the system. Can you mention some specific preventions in the child welfare space that could keep folks out of the system to begin with? Well, first of all, I think we need to shift the funding. You know, we need to put resources into the community so that they can provide support that is available and accessible and friendly. You know, most spaces where parents can access help, like schools and hospitals, for example, are staffed by what are called mandated reporters who are required by law to report suspected abuse and neglect. And going back to the theme of bias, it is clear that from beginning to end, bias infiltrates the system from which families are reported in the first place by mandated reporters to which families get services and which families ultimately are uh, deemed neglectful or abusive. So we need to invest in community-based services instead of slapping on this Band-Aid when families are truly in crisis. And I think part of that also is thinking about starting from the top, right? What are the federal laws that determine where the funding is going? And the controlling federal law is the Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997, which is, there are calls from many people, parents, uh, impacted people, and scholars who want this law repealed primarily because of this timeline, which mandates that if a child is in foster care for 15 out of 22 months, the state must move to terminate that parent's right. And there are not exceptions for incarceration or for substance use. All of these circumstances could have been prevented for a lot of people if we had put more resources in on the front end. And there is a a current amendment pending that was introduced by Representative Karen Bass that would create exceptions for incarceration and the families that Lee represents who are dealing with immigration consequences but the money is structured in such a way that there are bonuses for adoption. Like the, the foster care agency can receive a bonus if a child is adopted, but no such bonuses or financial incentives for reunification or family prevention. And that's so interesting that you say that. I know from being such a devoted husband and reading your papers that there's an interesting parallel between the Adoption and Safe Families Act and, for example, the 94 Crime Bill, right? Both passed around the same time, largely out of fear-mongering um, and systemic racism. And the way that ASFA may have had good intentions, but ultimately disproportionately hurt communities of color. So I think as a theme to close us out, investing in families instead of tearing them apart can fix so many of these problems that we're talking about. So Lee, I know so many of our listeners and supporters have been deeply invested in this story, but it feels like there's nothing they can do. Can you tell them what they can do? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I just want to thank all the ACLU supporters who have been engaged in this issue. It has allowed us, because they've been out there pushing, it's allowed everyone to hear that the American people won't stand for this. And, you know, also the financial contributions have been so critical to allow us to keep up this work and to try and find all these families all over the world. We still have more than a thousand children, some just little toddlers who haven't seen their parents in years. So 
look at the ACLU website, but also just whenever you get the opportunity, speak out on this issue and let the Biden administration know you still care. I think what any civil rights lawyer will ultimately tell you is you can do a lot in court, but really to have systemic change and reform, you need the public showing outrage and speaking out. And I think that happened in 2018 when the American public first heard about family separation. But unfortunately, you know, there is so much going on, but it's a little bit sort of under the radar now. And we really need our supporters to come out strongly and say to the Biden administration, you promised you would help these little children keep that promise. So with that, I want to close and I want to say thank you so much to Shanta and Lee. This has been supremely enlightening for me and I hope so for our listeners as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, be well and do good.